You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence service, foreign service, DOD employees and contractors, and their immediate family members to create compelling, professional live theater and events. You know, it's funny the kind of inspiration that can emerge from chaos. And I was thinking of that in light of this week's guest, Michael Bard. Michael is the son of a Ukrainian concentration camp survivor, really. Um, I don't know if concentration camp is the right word. Work camp survivor, I guess. Um, Who then, after World War II, came to the United States and joined the Air Force. Michael, being raised in the U.S., in Dayton, Ohio, was then free to live a life in the arts as a world-class classical guitarist. Um, He has worked with veterans, teaching them guitar, teaching them music. He's remained very closely aligned with the veteran community, came out and did our Savage Wonder Festival, accompanying Jesus Daniel Hernandez. And um, each layer of Michael's involvement with the veteran community was kind of like slowly revealed to me. So I've, I, it was great to be able to finally sit down with him and kind of get the whole story on how he had, um, on his career, his music. And then, of course, you know, just a fascinating familial backstory. There is an ulterior motive in all this. Um, Michael and his wife, Deborah surprised the hell out of us a couple of months ago when they asked us to be the beneficiaries of their concert at Carnegie Hall on November 4th. That's right. They are playing Carnegie Hall on November 4th and they called us up and were like, Hey, um, do you want to be, does vet rep want to be the beneficiaries of this? I was like, uh, what did, I mean, off the top of my head. Yeah, sure. But I was like, well, what does that mean? They're like, well, you just, we'll give you, you know, the proceeds. I was like, okay, what do you need from us to do that? And they're like, oh, nothing really. Like, you know, I mean, you know, if you can help with some marketing and stuff like that, I was like, are you kidding? Like, oh yeah, that's the easiest. Yes. And it's been um, a real pleasure to get to know Michael and Deborah, and um, and then to see not just the work that they're putting into the show, but sitting down with Michael and talking about you know his career and his and his music and the craft. Uh, it just gives me a whole other wave of appreciation, and um, so I'm thrilled that I finally was able to sit down one-on-one with Michael and really talk through everything. If you're saying to yourself, hey, that sounds pretty badass, you'd like to come see it? Yes, you can come see it. That is allowed. We do encourage it. I got to tell you, like tickets are already over half sold out, like eight weeks out from the show. But anyway, um, so yeah, come on out. Um, You can get tickets at vetrep.org. 
vetrep.org, vetrep.org. Just scroll partway down the homepage, and you'll see uh, the Michael Bard concert listed there with a link to uh, to get tickets. But anyway, um, and I'll talk about that again. But it again, I'm just so impressed with Michael and his dedication to the veteran community. The way he and Deborah speak about them um, is, you know incredibly flattering to the point that I can't even really hear it. It just, it's too much for me, but, um, but their love and affection for the community. And, uh, and then of course, just hearing about Michael's work and hearing him talk about his music is, you know, any artist, having any artist talk about their work is incredible. I'm not going to lie though. I mean, to me, he anteed up a pretty enchanting story at the beginning of this podcast that, had me pretty teared up and um, we could easily have done an entire hour and a half just on that, on his familial story. Anyway, uh, that's all a long way of whetting your appetite and saying uh, it was a thrill to be able to get Michael on the show this week. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the savage wonder of Michael Bard. Hey, thanks, Chris. Glad to be here, and uh, you know, happy uh, happy Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> I know we got a busy Wednesday because we, we're going to be zooming again later tonight, right? We're going to get sick of yes. seeing each other on Zoom. It's hey, impossible. Man. We have no legs, and we're both just floating heads because uh, at yeah, this well, point, that's all we do is talk to each other on Zoom. Hey, but that's um, cool. hey, no, it's it's a first world problem, man. It's and uh, in my intro, so I'm not going to reiterate it for everybody here, but I've talked about the event that we're going to do. At Carnegie Hall that you're putting on. When I say we, I mean, yes. we're kind of riding side we're riding, you know, in the in the sidecar for that. Um but dude, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this. When I was thinking about talking with you today, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think I fully appreciated how tied into the veteran community you were. And I'm going to blame Jesus for this because we both know and love Jesus. But I was like, you know, because when Jesus first uh when you came up and you were gonna do the festival, yeah. and Jesus was like Hey, he's like, uh, you know, the guy that I play with, and that's why how you were always refer, you know, my accompanist and all this. And I was like, and he's like, Michael, and he kept talking about you. And I was like, I feel like there's more to this guy than you're saying, but I don't know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. let's just start with let's just start with that. Okay. Why do you care about the veteran community so much? Just give people an overview of that, because I think that's really interesting and under talked about. Okay. Number one, first and foremost, my dad, uh, he was in the Air Force. He's an Air Force, was an Air Force vet. He's no longer with us. But uh, long story short, he was a prisoner of war in, uh, in Nazi Germany back in the, the late 1940s. Um, uh, he, he's Ukrainian, was Ukrainian. And, um, you know, essentially he was, you know, thrown onto a, 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 a train. His, um, his family was accused of harboring Jews. And, um, uh, was, it, was it true? 
kind of. This these two Jewish families were living on my grandfather's uh, farm in Ukraine for years and years, helping out with the farm work, and they didn't know they were going to be a liability. Right. So right. Uh, basically, um, somebody squealed when Hitler came through, and um, my dad and his dad were uh, basically given fifteen minutes to gather whatever things they wanted to take. They were thrown onto a train. My father was transported to, to Germany. Um, they actually rode on top of the train, he told me, because the train was packed and uh, you know, got to where they were. And my father was essentially made to work in a steel mill from 7 in the morning to 7 at night. And uh, the other side of that story is my grandfather actually jumped the train, uh, made it back to Ukraine. Uh, and you know, uh, lived safely for the next uh, few few decades. But anyway, my dad was able to uh, come to America, and um, he worked in a factory briefly and back in nineteen fifty one. I believe there's a newspaper article about him in the the Buffalo Times. Um, really great picture of him standing with the the people who brought him over. But um, he said, you know, I don't want to be a factory worker the rest of my life. I'd, I'd like to do something to honor this country. So he joined the Air Force. Joined the Air Force, and uh, you know he was, I think, all of uh, nineteen or twenty years old, and um, he served in the Korean War. Loved it. Um, coincidentally, went to a uh, 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 you know, an assembly one day with his his uh, his comrades, and there was a speech uh, about this GI Bill, and he's said, what is this GI Bill? And why you get to go to school for free? My dad turned to his friend and said, you get to go to school for free on the GI Bill? And he was just really taken. It's like, man, I could never afford to, to go to school, if, you know, because it's, it's such a high cost. But um, anyway, the at the Air Force enabled him to, to use the, the that program, the GI Bill, to, to go to college where, you know, eventually he met, he met my mom. Um, he went to Ohio State University. He studied math, met my mom at uh, Middlebury College in Vermont. Uh, they got married, you know, a couple years later. And then I popped out uh, a couple years after that. So, <laughs> so but, um, let, let me be clear. I mean, this mm-hmm. is going to be your episode and I want to hear about you, but okay. I can't let all this stuff go. And yeah. that, that's, that's unbelievably fascinating. I mean, can the I, fact that he's alive. A, yeah. No, a hundred percent. Can I break down mm-hmm. a couple of things? First off, sure. so wait. They're put on the train back to yes. Germany. Yes, sir. Your grandfather Jumped. jumps off the train. And he tried to get my dad to jump. My dad, he was 15 years old. He said, hell no, I don't want to jump. I don't want to really? die. <laughs> Holy shit. So yeah. he tried to take him and it's just your dad wouldn't jump. He wouldn't jump? No. Would, mother? Was there? Was, nope. It, nope. The, the girls were separated from the men, dude. And it was like, hey. Holy shit. You know, basically say your goodbyes now because uh, we're in control and what we say goes and I just can't imagine when I was 15 years old, you know, plus on the other side of that story, Chris, my dad was studying German in his Ukrainian high school at the time. So he had to act as the translator between my father, my my grandfather and the the Nazis who were getting ready to take them captive. Where are the Jews? Show us. And my my grandfather blatantly lied. And so my my dad said, I don't know. (laughs) So so with when they were separated, did he ever see? his mother again he never saw his mother again he did uh, correspond with his dad through letter letters uh, over the years and um 
I, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, he made a, a transcontinental phone call and uh, I got to say happy Father's Day to my grandfather. I think it was like eight or nine years old. And just to hear my grandfather's voice, he couldn't speak English. Obviously, he was you know, Ukrainian. He was saying, you know, thank you very much. Uh, glad you're in America. That sort of thing. But, you know, basically, the, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, armed services saved my my dad. Holy shit. And then, Wait. you know, as a token of his appreciation, you know what, I'm going to sign up for the Air Force and pay my respects yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to that. So, um, and it Wait. was shortly after it had, it had been named the uh, U.S. Army Air Corps, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it became the uh, Air Force. And my dad said, that's what I want, man. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm not asking you to play amateur psychiatrist, but my no, God, what, what was his relationship like with his father after? I mean, he never got to see him again. I mean, was he hurt? Was he a, a pissed that his dad was able to get off the train? He wasn't. Um, what, he never was. He, he never uh, expressed any anger or animosity uh, toward his dad. You know, it's just it was like, well, it's what my father wanted to do. And I'm glad that he's still alive. And um, it was uh, th- there was never any hatred between the two of us. They, they were never at odds. We would get letters from Ukraine every once in a while in Ukrainian. I couldn't read it. So my dad would translate, you know, and my grandfather's name was Stepan, Stephen. And he would just you know, write kind things. I'm so glad that you've made it to the, the land of opportunity. And thank you for serving this country. And coincidentally, his uncle John, my dad's uncle John, lived in Toronto. And he was in close contact with, uh, with my grandfather as well. So they would share stories at the dinner table about um, – how you know my grandfather was such a, a brave man uh, to do what he did. <laughs> oh my god! So, but, yeah. I mean, I'm amazed that they never were able to see each other. Though. No, and in fact, I got to be honest with you, Chris. After uh, Chernobyl, um, you know the whole nuclear yeah incident. My dad just said it would be too hard for him to take because um, he didn't want to see the devastation, and it just wasn't. Um... Plus, he said, "Why would I leave the United States of America to go back to that?" that place where the you know horrible experience uh, happened. And he just said, America's the best, you know, USA. And um, I just remember, you know, going to sporting events and you know, concerts and they would play the national anthem. My dad would always have his hand in his heart, a little tear in his eye, um, just because he was so proud to be here. And um, it was, uh, he, he was a good man, you know, <laughs> funny he said you know don't lie don't cheat don't steal i said but dad you lied to the nazis so <laughs> i had to <laughs> I depends who it is you're lying to i guess yeah that's right Fine. yeah but so yeah. so i mean what was it like growing up in that house did was were those experiences did they kind of hang over the house was it something where like every day you're acutely aware or was it kind of never talked about and my dad really never never really talked about it Never okay. talked about it, but um, one thing that was very, very visceral for me is when my father died um, back in January 2001 um, at the funeral service, uh, they presented the flag, you know, in, in the, the U.S. flag, and they folded it and put it in the box and handed it to my mom, and that was a very, very emotional thing for me to to witness because I, I'm just thinking about, you know, here's this 15-year-old kid, he's abducted from his home. Um, he comes to the United States. He serves in, in the, the Air Force, the you know the, the organization that he just so honored, and um, 
uh, was was true to and, and loyal to, and then now they're honoring him uh, at his funeral service. And I just thought this is really cool how how things uh, have have come for full circle because you know out of um, out of respect to this country, he said, you know, I really, really want to give back to you guys for giving me my freedom. And um, I've got copies of uh, his affidavit where he swore to become an American citizen and not to be subversive. And, you know, uh, but he always said, you know, America's the best. Anybody who tells you, you know, any different, they're, they, they've not lived uh, how, I, how I've lived. So my dad was, he was great. You know, he was uh, agnostic, probably even atheist, but probably, you know, one of the most loyal, um, honest guys uh, you'd ever want to you'd ever want to meet and for him to have the opportunity to serve this country as he did. That was one of his proudest times in, in, in his life. He was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. And I just remember seeing him, you know, pictures that my mom still has of him shaking hands with the commanding officers, you know, getting his certificates and whatnot. And it was just, you know, he was just so beaming um, because he was able to, to give back. What did he, how did he get out of Nazi? Um, okay, so the, the war ended, the American liberation. Oh, you know, okay. go USA, man. And wow. um, he was, so he was there throughout the war. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. He was put into a displaced persons camp. And this is kind of an interesting, strange story. He became best friends with the son of a priest, <laughs> Father Joseph Tchaikovsky. I'll spell that for you later. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the guy had kids before he became a priest or something. Wow, go figure. Okay, <laughs> but yeah. uh, in in this displaced persons camp, my uh, dad and his son became best friends. They learned what it was to be a good American citizen. And my dad said, "This is all I've dreamed. I just like want to go there so bad." Because Father Joseph and his family, they were getting ready to go on the ship to to go over there. And wow. it's in this newspaper article from the Buffalo Times. It's just really cool. So he. He said to my dad, you know, I promise to get you over to this country somehow, some way. And you know what? Father Joseph Tchaikovsky fulfilled his promise. And he was able to bring my father over through the Catholic Relief Services. And there's a picture of him, like I said, standing there proudly with just a suitcase, man. Can you imagine? You're you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, and you're standing right there. You don't know how to speak the language. You don't have a place to live. You don't have a job. You're there, you know, uh, at the uh, grace of other people who believe in you. And, um, you know, it's just because he became friends with this priest's son. It's like there was that connection, you know, had that not happened, probably what would have happened is you know, they would have sent him back to to Ukraine. I don't know. I don't I don't know the answer to that that story. But um, he was um, in a, a very, very fortunate Position. So yeah, the, the priest fulfilled his promise to bring him over, and um, yeah, just a very very cool. You know, it's like a made for TV movie. Oh, hundred percent. When when was it like pulling nails to get details from him, or did he eventually just kind of break down and tell you one time? I'll tell you one time what happened. Like how what was that like? Uh, it wasn't like pulling teeth or nails, but he did. Uh, I think one or two times, and and that was it. And prior to uh, his his passing, um, when I brought my fiance over, she asked him questions about his youth, and he actually told the the whole story again. 
And um, so it's, you know, it's documented. My mom knows all the details. And in fact, through the years, my mom relayed more details than, than I did. Cause I think my dad, you know, he was a sensitive guy and uh, didn't really, really want to live, relive the pain. Um, you know, it's not like he had you know, yeah. P- PTSD or anything like that, but uh, you know, it's not, you know, when you go through something like that, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll tell my story, but I don't want to, Keep repeating, repeating, repeating yes. because I yes. might become uh, des- desensitized to it, and it won't um, have the, the emotional effect that that it, it needs to have. But yeah, Peter was a good man. <laughs> That's incredible. In, in fact, what I gotta story. say, when I was uh, 18 years old, I had three choices after high school: get a job, go to school, or join the service. Well, I was that close to join the Air Force because you know, as a musician, I wanted to play in the Air Force band. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, I, I, uh, I chose to, to go to college instead and, um, I'm, I'm glad that I did, but you know, partially that decision was based on the fact that my dad served and I wanted to, to honor, honor him as well. Did you grow up on bases? I did not. I did not, but we grew up in Dayton, Ohio, which I'm sure, you know, is the home of Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Um, one of the biggest, well, at the time, one of the biggest Air Force, uh, bases in, in the world. And I remember going to summer camp there. And just, you know, going into the hangars and seeing the planes and it was just yeah. you know, truly inspiring. And, um, you know, to this day, I still, uh, just, uh, get shivers and when, when I go back and, and visit, it's, uh, the Air Force Museum is there and it's yeah, just sure, really, sure. really cool to be able to, to see the history, you know, and, um, just, what was it, what was it your dad did then? For okay, so he didn't really go into much detail, but he said he basically sat at the desk and wrote letters um, to be delivered to the um, the officers, uh, to, to the vets who were killed in combat, to present to the families of of the vets. So basically, he that was he wrote his con- job. Con- condolence letters, yeah. For who? Like, who was he doing that for? Uh, I guess he would write the letters and then pass them to his commanding officers. And then they would, you know, send them to the guys who would come knock at the door. I'm sorry, wow. Mr. and Mrs. Jones, your son, Chad, has passed in, in uh, war. And, you know, um, at least that's that's what I remember. He may have had other duties. He probably right, did. Right. But um, one kind of funny story is the fact that, you know, his last name was actually Bardetsky. Okay, but. Why is my last name Bard? Yeah, B A R D. Yeah. I'll tell you why. It's because uh, when he was in Hawaii, he missed his port of call because his commanding officer was taking role, you know, Jones, Smith. And then he didn't say Bardeski. He said something like Bardekages, or because there's a Y Z J at the end of my dad's name. My dad didn't understand it. So he missed, his, <laughs> missed the boat. <laughs> his officer was pissed. And he said, okay, from now on, Peter, your last name is Bard. B-A-R-D. And so they chopped off the rest. So it's no longer Bardetsky. <laughs> so, Holy crime. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. And most people, if they say, Michael Bard, is that your stage name? Because Bard, you know, yeah, that's like, yeah. you know, you're, you're a poet, you're a musician, yeah. you know, you're in the arts. It's, that's really cool. I said, no, that's actually my my last name. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> but not really. Yeah. So, so it, was your dad career? Did he, did he do a full 20 years? What did he, he do? He did, uh, I, I, did, I believe it was only four years, but okay. um, All right. still. Gotcha. Uh, and, yeah. Well, he did say, though, he was thinking about making a career, but then when he, when this whole thing about the Army GI Bill, you can go to school for free. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like the floodgates open. He's up. like, dude, I am going to take yeah. advantage of this. Yeah. Thank you, Uncle Sam. Yeah. Uh, because 
he felt like he was taken away, even though he got to you know study um, in, in high school at this displaced uh, uh, prisoners' camp in, um, in 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 Germany. Um, he just felt like his his education had been cut off, stilted. So uh, this was a, an opportunity for him to go in and complete his education. So he got uh, his his degree at Ohio State University in math, and then he wanted to continue with more education. So he went to Middlebury College, like I said, where he met my mom. He was getting his uh, master's degree in Russian, of all things. (laughs) My mom was studying Russian too. So they met and, uh, you know, it's interesting. He was 15 years older than she was, than she is. She's still alive. Um, And uh, they just ended up uh, talking and being together and, um, like and was I he a said, professor? Was he a professor? He was actually a math teacher at the, at our local high school when I was wow. a kid at Fairview High School in Dayton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, you know, that was his contribution to, to society because he you truly believe that education is you know, is key. You know, you yeah. want to get ahead in life. You, you know, you got to go to school. You got to make your mind uh, make a better thing, a powerful thing. Just you know, try to to grow and. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he was uh, a proud math teacher. And in fact, when when he passed away, dozens and dozens of his students showed up to the funeral, just you know, with glowing. You know, your dad was the best math teacher I remember, Mister Bard. You know, they used to call him the Count because you know the Count from Cause Sesame Street. Because my dad had an accent, and he was like, yep. "Very good, sir. <laughs> you did your algebra really great." So, <laughs> the Count, yeah. So then, yeah. How, what were you like then as a kid? Did you immediate? Were there a lot of? Were you were you drawn to math, or did you were you completely the other way? Like, what was the environment I, like for you? I sucked at math. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was good. I was good. You know, uh, what's what's the old saying? All the always the uh, never the fall apart from the truth. Yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say something like a carpenter's the shoemaker or something like that. There's an analogy <laughs> out there, but anyway, um, I was good until about uh, high school, and then I just um, music is really what uh, sort of took me down a, a different path because, um, you know, I, I picked up guitar when I was 11 years old and I said, this is so great. And you know, originally I wanted to be a drummer. My parents said, no way we're not having drums in the house. <laughs> um, but you know, what's, yeah. what's cool is my, my parents and especially my dad, cause you know, he never said, okay, you got to do it. He, the main thing was get a good education. I don't care what you do. Just please just go to school and exercise your mind and, you know, get some, it's some knowledge up there, dude, because that's that's key to, to living a successful life, which I truly believe it is. But he was never one to say, okay, you got to go into this career or that career. You know, when I said, I'm thinking about joining the Air Force, that he said, oh, okay, great. And then yeah. a few weeks later, Dad, I'm thinking about maybe going to school instead. Okay, great. Interesting. <laughs> you know? uh, but Interesting. they were, my parents were school teachers. So here's the thing, Chris, they were tough, but they were fair. Okay. And they were never, the type of folks who uh, would try to, to uh, push us into the, you know, a certain um, level of, of, of uh, field of study. Yeah. They just, they believed in, you know, uh, freedom of choice and you know, letting us, yeah. letting the kids uh, yeah. follow what they wanted to do. And I think the main reason is because my dad's freedom was taken away when he was, yeah. when he was a young kid. It was like, you know what, I'm going to let my, my kids decide. Whatever it is they want to do, I'm, I'm just I'm just gonna go on a tangent for a second. But you know what it makes me think? My my favorite band of all time is Rush. And oh, I love I, Rush. I, I've seen them right? like ten times. <laughs> oh, I, I such a huge fan. And, and one of the yeah. things that always stood out to me uh, when I would defend and explain to people why they were the greatest rock band of all time uh, was that 
um, I was like, you know, Getty and Alex's parents both came through the war and yes, through the Holocaust yes, and through absolutely. the concentration camps. Yep, and I was yep. like, you know, there's something about that next generation and the freedom accorded to them. And it might not be something that the parents understand, but they're like, hey, we're here in Canada. You have all these absolutely. choices. And yeah. it was, did you see the same thing with you in music where like you went to music and like your parents are super supportive because like, yeah, there's just there's color. There's lushness. There's yeah. there's this freedom that you can have yeah. that he didn't get. Yeah, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. In fact, um, there's a, a documentary. It's uh, with Alex Lifeson and a whole bunch of other kids. They basically lived in a house and outside of Toronto when they were like you know late teens, early twenties, and it shows Alex's parents coming over. They have a big dinner party, and his parents are kind of you know telling him about what their experiences were. were and, you know, Alex, are you sure you want to be a musician? Because you know, <laughs> think, you know, what do you just think about what could happen? You know, what what would happen, and and all that. But um, you know, coincidentally, you know, Alex became a famous rock yeah. star a few years right, later. But right. one of my one of my favorite lines because I'm a huge Rush fan. I, that was my first concert actually, 1982 at wow. the University of Dayton Arena. They they were uh, in town. I think it was a 12 year old kid and 11 or 12, and um, it was it was great. And they played my favorite song, Free Will. You know. And I love that uh, line. Um, you know, I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. Um, you know, Permanent Wave is one of my all-time favorite yeah. albums by Rush, if not you know any other rock band. But um, uh, when I when I think back to to um, to those days, you know, like I would say, yeah, I want to go see this concert. And my dad, Rush, what is Rush? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went, and it was great. And um, the funny thing is, the um, the phone at my parents' house kind of came off the hook. So we were calling, trying to get a ride back. My friend Chris and I, with our, you know, to get a ride back to our house, and it was the busy signal. You know, back in the days when it was a busy yeah. signal. Yeah. <laughs> Much I love the eighties, but uh, anyway, you know, we're standing there waiting, waiting. And my friend Chris says, "You know, why don't we just walk home?" I said, "I don't know, it's kind of a long walk." So around twelve thirty in the morning, my dad's car comes barreling down into the parking lot of you know University of Dayton Arena, and it's like, "Why didn't you guys call?" I said, "We did, Dad." We did. So he gets home, and then he looks at the phone. He's like, "Oh, it was off the hook. I'm so sorry." That is so funny. Yeah. What, what? So, when did you get into guitar? Why did you get into guitar? Why did that uh, call you? Okay, I was, uh, I think, ten or eleven years old when I picked up the guitar, but um, primarily because of pop music. Um, specifically okay. because of the band, the band Kiss. You remember Kiss? Really? The guy, yeah, yeah, of course, the, sure. The makeup yeah. and you know, breathing fire and spitting blood, and they had the costumes and the lights and the you know, fire and stage show and the whole production and all that. And my brother and I were just huge fans. We had, you know, posters of Kiss plastered all over our bedroom walls, wow. you know. Um, so that was the the main thing. But it wasn't so much the music. I mean, I liked the music. I still like them to, to this day, but it was more the, the spectacle, the pageantry, the visual and all that. So um, I, yeah, I wanted to be Peter Chris. I wanted to be the drummer yeah. with all that big rack of yeah. drums and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents said, no, no drums, as I mentioned earlier. And they just yeah. said, how about another instrument? So I said, oh, all right. So the, the band instructor was coming around from classroom to classroom. He had a trombone. So I, you know, he said, Michael, I want you to come try out this trombone. So I'm, and he said, man, you're actually, you got some good breath, man. You want to try the trombone? I said, well, let me go home and talk to my parents. And um, I just remember my sister sitting there going, trombone? That's such a nerdy, <laughs> nerdy instrument. Are you sure? 
I said, oh, okay, well. And then I said, what about the guitar? And my parents said, okay. So they signed me up for guitar lessons. And uh, at my school, at my public school, there were group guitar lessons for kids. And I started wow. late. I started the class like two weeks late. So I get in there and all the kids are playing, you know, C, G7, and they're switching back and forth. And I, by the time I got to the G7 chord, they were back on the C and I was so frustrated. I said, man, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. So I went home and I told my parents and they said, no, you stick with it. You signed up for it. You see it through the rest of the semester. If you don't like it at the end of the semester, then you you can go and do something else. So I went home and I practiced like a mofo and i just really wanted to catch up with those kids so i did and i caught up with them and then i got better than them <laughs> and then yeah. it got to the point where i was showing kids how to play just little things like you know smoke on the water uh, you know yeah. uh, just some some rock classics um so i was i was hooked from that point on and my parents said okay if you do really well in school then um, we'll buy you an electric guitar because i really wanted an electric guitar and my yeah. parents said yeah. okay no just practice your little acoustic and you know, well, if you make good grades, then you try your best, and we'll 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 honor you and gift you that electric guitar. So, I got my first electric guitar and an amplifier, and I was so happy. And I remember the first song I learned was "Eye of the Tiger." I was just like, man, it sounds so much better on the electric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what? And what did you? Were you the kid that was running home to practice guitar? Absolutely. You love doing it. Absolutely. And you know what? Um, I was involved in some sports. I played baseball as a kid and I played soccer in high school, but it was for the example, for an example, just to the point where I would come home, I would just play, 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 and then you know, do my homework and play more. And then it was dinner time. And my dad would say, okay, kids, it's time for dinner. Cause back then we would all sit together at the dinner table as a family. You know, it wasn't just every man for himself and just go sit in front of the TV. TV was always off. We were sitting at the table having a discussion. How was your day? What did you learn at school? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, it got to, to some, sometimes to the point where I would be up in my room practicing. My dad would have to come up two, three, four times. Mike, come on. It's dinner time. <laughs> it's like, Dad, wow. I just, just want to wow. play, you know, because I was uh, learning so many cool songs. I didn't want to stop. <laughs> and, and in your kind of pre-teenage mind or even teenage mind as, as mm-hmm. years went on, what did you think was going to happen? What was your, what was your daydream? What was your fantasy? Did you have visions of starting your own band of opening for Kiss? Like, what what did you think? You yeah, were do with it? Ab- absolutely. All that all that stuff. And in fact, I did uh, start several bands in high school. I was a band in college. Um, my high school band was called the Nothings, and we actually amounted to nothing. <laughs> we've got some, so we've got some old recordings that uh, I, you know, I still have, and I listen, listen back, and it's just kind of laugh. But it was a fun, creative time in my life, and I think that that was that was the key. So I wanted to create. You know, I didn't necessarily want to be a you know a big famous rock star. I mean, it would have been you know nice, but I just wanted to to do something creative, and I. You know, here I am all these decades later and I'm still doing something creative. Yeah. You know, I'm writing, I'm, I'm performing, I'm doing all kinds of cool things. I'm published. It's, it's, it's great. Um, but back then, I think I was just so in the moment that, uh, you know, things like superstardom and, you know, being, yeah, right. you know, in front of, you know, opening up for Rush or whatever. Um, yeah. I, I guess that from time to time that would cross my mind. But um, it was just the fact that, hey, I've, I'm able to, you know, play this instrument and, and, uh, just 
make myself happy. I mean, that's, I found my happiness when I pick, picked up a guitar, you know, and so every time I, yeah. I pick it up, it's, it's still just so, so visceral, you know, it never gets old, never gets old. That's it. So it's, it, do you, did you ever hear that James Hetfield interview where he talked about like how he goes into another world when he's playing guitar and he just can't, and he loses track of time. He's yeah. just complete. Is that true for you? Is that your happy place? Absolutely. And it's, uh, I love Metallica and I love uh, the James Hetfield interview because I know what you're talking about. Um, you know, without that, I mean, in fact, a student of mine, cause I you know, teach full time as well. Uh, a few years ago, I was like, what would you, what do you think he would have done if he didn't? end up playing guitar and you know teaching and, yeah. and writing and goodbye i said oh man i never thought about that that's woo, i don't wow. i don't think i could even imagine what life would be like because it is such a visceral part of my being such a connection to my soul um just having that positive vibration and, you know i think that's why i'm you know such a happy guy because i love sharing it with others too yeah, you know, so um, it's truly yeah. like you're. Yeah, I, I that makes so much sense to me. For some reason, I I knew going into this, I was like, I don't think Michael's going to come in and go. Yeah, I picked up the guitar after college. You know, it's like no, <laughs> no. You know, he's a lifer. He's, this is yeah, you yeah. know, dangerously close to being born with a guitar in your hand. Yeah, but you know what's what's interesting? Not to interrupt is um, I started with you know the rock and the pop and all that. Yeah. But then I heard a recording of Andres Segovia, the great Spanish guitarist, yeah. and I said, oh man, I want to play like those guys. And my Dad says, that's not those guys. That's that guy. So what are you talking about? Because he was playing a song called Leyenda. It's a Spanish uh, guitar, really, you know, showstopper piece. And it sounded to me like it was at least a guitar duet, maybe even three guys. Because it was fingerstyle. And I had never played fingerstyle. I was always playing with a pick. So um, I eventually you know, went to study classical guitar and you know, um, fingerstyle, uh, rumba flamenco, which is, you know, a very popular, uh, upbeat style of, of uh, Spanish guitar. Um, so I, I still play with a pick, but, you know, I like to do the, the Spanish, uh, fingerstyle stuff too, as, as you'll hear at the upcoming yeah, concert. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I want to get into that. Um, mm -hmm. especially the technical stuff here in a second. I want to mm -hmm. just paint the journey a little bit, um, as we go there. Who were your influences coming into high school, college? Who are you listening to? Was it still Kiss? Had you moved on from that? Like, who were you finding yourself fascinated with? Okay, so uh, I was a child of the '80s. I graduated high school in '87. Okay. Um, so, of course, late '70s, I was into Kiss, um, and then um, I got heavily into the Beatles. Okay. Beatles were uh, heavily influential, especially George Harrison. He was he was my main influence. Just, he was the dark horse, you know. He wrote yeah. a few hits. But, um, you know, he was sort of overshadowed by Lennon and McCartney. But um, Queen, I became a huge Queen fan. Loved uh, Brian May. He was one of my, is one of my heroes. Um, Rush, you know, when I heard uh, uh, Tom Sawyer, I was hooked. You know, they were my first concert. Um, and then uh, in the 80s, it was all the metal bands. Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Ozzy Osbourne, and then... Hair metal, you know, poison, white snake, quiet wow. riot. You know, <laughs> so you were like on trend with all that, like because that's, that's a pretty wide, diverse absolutely. group of listening. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And MTV was king back then, right? Yeah. So you could yeah. you come home and watch all these cool videos. Van Halen, I got to put Eddie at the top. You know, God rest his soul. He's definitely one of my top three guitar heroes of all time. Um, coincidentally, he and my other favorite guitarist, Brian May, they recorded an album together called Starfleet Project, which was, you know, just a, an EP, but it was um, something that I went out and bought immediately because I just loved hearing the two of them 
play together on the same album. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, later in the, the 80s is when I uh, was influenced by the, the classical guitar repertoire. So I went from, you know, classic rock to heavy metal to, to classical gotcha. Spanish guitar. And, and during that time, what was what was the apex of those times? Was it just practicing in your room? Was it composing stuff? Was it being on stage? What did you find yourself really getting turned on by? You know, it, it was all of that, Chris, plus the fact that we could go and play at a friend's house. They'd set up a stage and we'd have a party. And, wow. um, you know, it was uh, inspiring to see people, you know, watch me and go, man, that's pretty cool. Michael, you, you know how to play that. Dire Straits solo from Salt and Spring, uh, or that, yeah, yeah. that solo from Spirit of Radio, you know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just to, to be able to to share my passion with others on that level, but then you know later on that transcended um, to the apex of uh, graduate school and playing classical concerts, and then you know being invited to to study in, in Europe, sure. uh, Italy specifically, and playing um, the concerts all over Italy at the school that I went to. Okay, we got to we got to get to that. Yeah, I want I want to hear all about that. Let me let me um back up though to the, the high school thing. Did you, in high school, early college, did you find yourself outgrowing your taste? Did you find yourself getting bored with metal or with riffs? Did you find yourself becoming a proper guitar, guitar snob where you're like, uh, hey, I, when, I'm, I need something more complicated? Yeah, when I um, started really focusing on the classical repertoire, I kind of let go. I didn't totally let go of my electric because it was always it's always there with me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I, I never abandoned those roots, um, but I did put it on the back burner, you know? So when I was in at Arizona state university studying classical guitar, it was, I was so focused on that repertoire um, that I just, I didn't, I didn't shun my electric, but I didn't give it as much time as I did previously because I wanted to excel at something that, you know, to my mind was you know, a little more, uh, a lot more challenging, actually. You know, the classical guitar is not an easy instrument to master. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you know, the guitar you can you know bash away at you know chords, but you know when it comes to playing something, you know, like Leanda or anything by Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, it really takes a different mindset, a different focus, and it, you just have to ratchet it up uh, to a, a higher level. Why did you go to Arizona State? Because they gave me money for a scholarship. <laughs> okay, Dude, were and, they known? Were they known for classical guitar? Yes, yes. Okay. yes. At, the, at the time, Chris, they were one of the top five. Well, maybe top eight or ten schools for classical guitar instruction. So I sent out. I don't know. Probably I don't know five or, or or seven applications to all the guitar schools around the country. You know, Florida State was one of the top. Peabody Conservatory. Here in Baltimore, was also is actually still one of the top, and then Arizona, um, Arizona State, and University of Arizona, and USC, as I remember, were the, the top schools. And um, so Arizona State said, "Yeah, hey, we'll give you a little money. This is this is great." So my parents said, "Okay, well, that's what you should do," because you know they were school teachers and they didn't have a lot of money to, yeah. you know, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. sell us, and they didn't want me to take out a whole bunch of student loans and you know getting a lot of student loan debt so i uh, went to arizona state and it was probably that was the apex of my uh early 20s you know you've experienced because i got to be on my own for the first time 
you know, and I really had to prove myself. It was my job to make good grades and, uh, you know, study the guitar and play well enough and, you know, soak up all the knowledge. Plus, the really great thing is I was around a bunch of guys who were way better than I was. And you know what that does? Yeah. That I'm elevates sure you. Fine. And, yeah. you, well, two things. You can either say, oh, crap, I'm not going to be ever that good. <laughs> Quit and go do something else. But, or inspire and inspire me. It's like, dude, I want to be as good as mark and jason and steven um so i really put my nose to the grindstone and and um that was uh, a really really cool experience in my life because it made me a better musician i think because i was around guys who were you know miles eons above what i was i went in there thinking hey, i'm this i'm this cool kid from Dayton, yeah. ohio and i'm gonna show yeah. you because you know <laughs> it was not the case it's like you, you go in with certain expectations, but then you realize, man, I got a lot of work to do. But it was good. It was good because I needed that kick in the butt. Because right. if you get too comfortable and you get too cocky, it's, that's never a good thing. Yeah, sure. I sure know. What did you – so first thing, a, am I crazy? But it seems like all those schools you listed mm-hmm. all are in areas with heavy Spanish populations. Like we're not yeah. talking about University of Minnesota, right? No. And it, no. Is, that, is that coincidental? I, I don't know anything I, about the classic guitar world, but I mean, is Spanish guitar and classic guitar closely aligned? Is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, okay, so there's closely aligned. Yeah, yeah. I would say, and I think it's purely coincidental, Chris, because okay, you know, Arizona, uh, Arizona State, because you know they offered me the scholarship. Uh, Italy, which is a Latin country, um, you know, uh, they offered me a scholarship too. So I, I I went because my parents, especially you know, education is key and all that. But um, in terms of um, you know, uh, the, the, the Spanish guitar and the classical guitar, those are kind of one and the same, although the classical guitar mm. can span, you know, from France to Italy to, to Spain to Germany to the United States to South America, whereas flamenco guitar, which I play a little bit of, I'm, I'm more of a what's called a rombero. I play gypsy rumba, which is um, just a one little sliver facet of, of the whole pie that is flamenco. I am not a, a flamenco guitarist, but I, mean, I can I, I dabble on that. But um, the classical guitar is uh, more, I would say, uh, a greater uh, spectrum. Because, you know, flamenco—that's Spain. Like classical guitar yeah. can go from yeah. Europe to South America to North America to, to Asia to, to wherever. So, but when you say um, you know the, the, the Spanish guitar, yeah, that's the Segovia repertoire. That could be. You know, a um, lot, lot of Spanish composers, Albanios, Granados, all those guys. But um, classical guitar you know, also includes the transcriptions of Johann Sebastian Bach, music of the of the Renaissance, uh, music of the the Baroque guitar, music of the Romantic guitar. Um, so it's a, it's a bigger, bigger, gotcha. much bigger spectrum. Gotcha. Yeah. And then at Arizona State. What is it you were learning? What's your big, technically, what was the takeaway? What was the difference? Well, Mike, these guys are so good, but I mean, how are they getting you better? Well, um, they were inspiring and they showed me how to do things. They they helped me improve my technique, specifically my instructor, Frank Kuntz, who I always got to give a big shout out to because he was the one who really helped me pay attention and focus on the details and be more careful. Um. And I wasn't really doing that previously. And oh. these guys who I was around and my professor, Frank, said, Michael, you've, you've got so much potential, but you really need 
to hone in on this and focus more on this and refine your skills. And, you know, they didn't ever say we can promise you're going to be a better player, but they did say you work hard and, you know, good things will happen. And, and they did eventually. And I listened to old recordings of my audition tapes before I went to Arizona State University. And they're okay. Mm-hmm. They're okay. But mm-hmm. then I listened to, uh, you know, as a side note here, my mom really wanted a, a recording of my final master's recital at Arizona State, which I had an old cassette tape of, and I never converted it to a CD or an MP3, but I finally did for her birthday back in July. And I gave it to her. And then, so, but I, I listened to that, that recording and compared that to my audition tape. And it's like no comparison. Really. <laughs> it's like, like, you know, uh, you know, a, a greasy little, you know, hamburger with French fries <laughs> or a filet mignon, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. dinner with, you know, champagne. I mean, not to toot, toot my own horn, but I really, when I hear it, I hear a huge difference because if I had just stayed in Dayton and just bashed away, I, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have grown so that the opportunity of being around all these great players and having such a great instructor really, really helps me elevate. You know, I wanted the knowledge and I wanted the skills and I wanted to improve on all that. And I'm still, you know, climbing that mountain. You know, I'm never satisfied. Well, you're never going to get there, right? I mean, it's always (laughs) going to be the journey, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. What if, what about performance wise? Did you, um, especially as someone that was captivated with the showmanship of Kiss mm-hmm. yeah. and you know the MTVization of music and all that? Absolutely. Did you find, um, did you find any altering in your performance style? Did you find yourself maturing on stage in some way? What, what was that like? What was the showmanship yeah. part like? Absolutely. Well, you know, when I started about playing rock guitar, you know, you you want to imitate. I wanted to imitate Alex Lifeson in the Rush. I yeah. wanted to imitate Brian May of Queen. I wanted to imitate, you know, the metal guys who came later, the guys in Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and, you know, the, the metal gods like Yngwie Malmsteen and sure. uh, Steve Vai, you know, all these, these guys. So I noticed that with all these guys, mostly, not some, Alex is a little more conservative, you know, great guitarist, but he wasn't jumping around like, you know, yeah. Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, yeah um, right, right. <laughs> but, uh, I think it was mm, maybe intentional that I kind of culled from each of those guys and just sort of developed my own stage persona, as it will, and that eventually translated into the you know, classical guitar. Because with the classical guitar, you're just kind of you know sitting there, and you know hopefully the audience is listening to what you're doing and really really engaged. But you have to have a little bit more showmanship not that i'm going to jump around like eddie van halen or anything right, like that right. but that's um it's, it's still on my roots it's still on my my heart and soul um so there was a lot more of of that showmanship standing you know playing electric guitar moving around than there there was or is um you know playing the, the classical uh spanish guitar repertoire but i i try to incorporate you know you know, a little bit of uh, showmanship in, into that as well, but it's uh, not to the point of it being theatrics. Right, I mean, I'm, right. I'm all about uh, theatrics, but there's uh, one guitarist who I saw years ago, a Japanese guitarist, the Typhoon from the West is what they call him, or the Typhoon from the East. 
<laughs> one, one of those, uh, yeah, Kazuhito, yeah. Kazuhito Yamashita, and um, he, he's fabulous, just one of the top guitarists in, in the world. He would do things like he would strum a chord and then stand up from his chair, and, and, and then uh, it was just a little too over the top for me. And I said, I, you know, that's cool, but I don't think I want to go that far. Interesting. But um, I think you have to engage the audience, you know, visually and uh, orally. Um, yeah. um, you know, but at the, at the same time, you want to make sure that you know the the, the notes you play are as, as accurate as they, they can be. <laughs> Yo, yeah, of course. And yeah. at Arizona State, was there any focus on composition? Was that part uh, of I, it? I, I did take a composition class uh, with a fabulous instructor, Chenery Ung, U-N-G. Um, but some of the pieces that I but we were, you know, given assignments to write. We're not uh, guitar based. Some of them were for ensemble, like wind ensemble, mm. piano, strings, whatnot. Um, but I was not a hundred percent enchanted with that class because it was more the sort of twentieth century, cutting edge, cacophonous, really out there, esoteric oh. music that. I can take in small doses, but I can't through sit through an entire night night of that. So, my style of composition, as you'll hear at the Carnegie Hall concert, because I'm going to play two of my pieces, is more melodic, um, accessible. Um, some people even have even said, "Michael, it's like pop classical guitar music." Uh, which is that an insult to me? I don't care. I like it. You know, yeah, it's uh, yeah. stuff that I want to hear, stuff that I, I like to play. Um, but it's more in line with. Uh, you know what Segovia would have would have played. I think, I think so. Yeah, but my own style of composing is more melodic. You know. Yeah, and how difficult was that to learn and try out and develop and mature that when there is so much emphasis in that world on the cacophonous, on that stuff that you don't like. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 And I gotta say, Chris, that's more of a you know sort of an ivory tower university professor mm. outlook it's where they you know they're always and that's nothing wrong with you know cutting edge and blazing a new trail and doing all that but i tried to really get into that 20th century guitar repertoire and um it just didn't speak to my soul it didn't it didn't hit me the way that it, it uh, the other other music that i was playing uh hit me so I I took that class for one semester and it was great, but then I realized, you know what? I just I'd rather write a song with three chords that has nice melody. <laughs> yeah, can can yeah. relate to the you know sitting around at a campfire or whatever, and people want, hey, that's pretty cool. Instead of you know pulling the strings and hitting the guitar and you know rolling around in jello. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. What what's the difference for you emotionally <laughs> interpreting? an already established piece and doing your own stuff. Do you notice a difference? Is there emotionally just some different takeaway for you? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do. I think every artist uh, has their own, on, own take on a, a certain, well, on, on any given piece really. Um, so for example, for the, the concert that I'm playing, obviously I'm playing from the you know, music of the Spanish masters, some music of Bach, um, the, the songs that Jesus and I are, are doing together, those are all my own arrangements. He just uh, asked me to, to do that for him. Um, but uh, the, the, the takeaway on, on that is 
I'll listen to a piece and then I'll go and watch YouTube or whatever and see how other players might play it. And I said, oh, that's pretty nice. That's pretty nice. But I think I, I would feel more in line with doing this phrase that way or playing this melody line that way. Um, and I think it's because of it's, you know, it's an amalgam of all this musical experience that I've accumulated over the years. So you can, I, I think of it as like a big stew. You got rock, jazz, classical, rumba, flamenco, you know, folk, country, all that. And it's just, it's all part of me. It's all in my, my heart, my soul, my mind, my fingers. And I just like to kind of mix it all together. You know, I'm a, I'm a smorgasbord guitar player. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 so, yeah. So after Arizona State, talk about mm -hmm. what happened next. So this is when Italy came calling? Yeah, I was actually, uh, my, my uh, toward the end of my first year of graduate school at Arizona State, um, there was a professor who came from Italy. His name was Carlo Barone. Um, he passed away last year. God rest his soul. Again, a great, great freaking teacher. Um, and I played for him in a master class. And then um, I thought, oh, I, I did. Okay. Uh, the next day, my professor Frank says, Michael, would you be interested in going to Italy? I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, Carlo was really impressed with you playing, and he thinks that you'd be a perfect candidate to come study at L'Accademia del Cento, which specializes in the music of the classical guitar, and specifically the music of the Italian uh, classical uh, guitar composers and the Spanish classical guitar composers. And I said, well, I don't know. It's, you know. It sounds like it's you know a pretty penny. I don't know if I can afford it. He said, no, he's, he's giving you a scholarship. All you got to do is pay for the plane ticket. And I said, oh, I don't know if my parents are going to go for that. So I went home that night to my apartment. <laughs> I called my parents. I said, you know, this has happened. And this guy really wants me to come study, but we got to pay for the plane ticket. I know you guys don't have it. And my dad says, no, no, you go. You go. We will pay for your plane ticket. Um, anything else? I said, no, the, the education is taken care of. The food, the room and board, that's all taken wow. care of. Plus, we're going to be giving concert tours all up and down. Uh, Italy, he gave about, I don't know, 10 or 12 concerts. Um, so that was a fortuitous occurrence because I just played for the guy and I thought, wow, it's, this is really cool that he's, and I just, I remember that was my first ever European experience. And huh. to this day, Italy is still my favorite European country, but I learned a lot from the students there because there were guys there who were much better than I was than, you know, on, um, it, where, it, where was it in Italy? Where in, Italy? Uh, in a very small town called Brezzo di Bedro, which is, well, Bejevano, which is in the lake region, northern Italy. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. La La Lago Maggiore is, uh, the, the, the campus was on Lago Maggiore. It was actually in a, in a, a house overlooking Lago Maggiore. So for people who don't quite know where that is, it's, you know, you go up the Italian countryside in Milan and then you go further north and then there's the Alps, the Swiss. We were 20 minutes from Switzerland. Wow. So, um, wow. Yeah. yeah, and it was in the in summer. So the weather is beautiful. The weather was, was perfect. And that's yeah. how long it was. It was a summer program. It was a summer, summer program. It was the summer of 1993 or 94. Wow. Either 93 or 94. Yeah. But um, I felt really fortunate. And then there was one other American. Um, who was invited as well? A great guy who I'm still friends with. His name's Douglas James, and um, he's really full bore on just you know, focusing on the repertoire of that era, you know, the the 19th century classical guitar repertoire. So he only plays uh, on period instruments, you know, instruments that were built um, 
back back in that that time period, or instruments that have been constructed to re- reflect the instruments of of the nineteen uh, late late nineteenth uh, early. I'm sorry, late eighteenth early nineteenth century. What did you take away from that experience when you left? How were you different than when you got there? Um, well, the experience of having been in a foreign country and being around all these, uh, wonderful Italian people, you know, the, the hospitality was, was so great, but I just remember feeling I'm learning all this really cool new stuff and I don't quite understand the language, but these people are so helpful. I, you know what it was? It was the same thing I experienced at Arizona state university. It's like these kids and these classmates and teachers were saying, you know, we, we love you. We embrace you. We want you to get better and just would put, push me. And I guess that was the, the experience was just to, um, it, it made me a better player. Yeah. What, did you shift focus at all after that? Did you beca- go, Hey, I know exactly the path that I want to go down or I'm much clearer on the kind of music I want to be working on. Mm-hmm. Was there any of that? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 in fact, um, I wanted to, to continue on that path, you know, studying just classical guitar, you know, at that time I wasn't really playing much electric at all. So when I got back to the States, my professor Frank said, why don't you apply for a full Fulbright scholarship? So I did hopefully, you know, fully intending to go back to Italy and study more. I didn't get it. You know, those, those uh, are not easy to come by. Sure. I'm sure, you know, so, um, um, my path took a different, different direction um i ended up you know getting married at a young age moving to this area um but then i slowly started getting back into the electric and into jazz but i never lost the the classical roots and then eventually i started uh, studying uh, rumba flamenco so had i gotten that scholarship and gone back to italy to study i probably would have um probably would have stayed on more of a straight and narrow classical trek but looking back, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't because I love playing rock and jazz and pop and, you know, country and all, all that other good stuff. I was just teaching a kid the other day how to play um, uh, uh, New World Man. Oh, yeah. Sure. And he was like, oh, man, that's based on a D major scale. I said, yeah, dude, it's pretty cool. And then he said, I don't know if Alex Lifeson knows how to, to play, um, <laughs> if he knows anything about music theory or if he even knows how to, to read music. but. Um, I just love to be, to be able to go back to when I was 11, 12 years old and, you know, listen to that music and then share it with uh, the young kids these days who really are, are into it. And it's an inspiring thing to be a, a teacher, to share my knowledge of, of that, that style. So when you left Italy, what did you think you were going to do? What was the plan? I thought I was going to be a college professor teaching classical guitar at a major yeah. university in the United States yeah. of America. Because that's the path, right? That's what you're that supposed is to do when path. you do all that, that's, right? Yeah. That's the path, yeah. yeah. And um, honestly, I think the majority of classical guitar teachers are you know, part-time adjunct. Yeah. Um, and nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm glad to be independent, quite frankly, because I call my own shots. If I don't want to, you know, take on a certain, you know, uh, gig or student or whatever, I just say yes or no. And it's just huh. that's the way it is. But, um, I, I have a buddy who is a, uh, 
He just got on tenure track at uh, Cal State Fresno. Wonderful friend. His name's Corey Whitehead. We've done three state, four state department tours together. But Corey's a classical guitarist, but he's also a rock and, and pop and all that. And I asked him about, you know, what it what it took to get that tenure track. And I said, was it you know, was it worth what you had to go through in order to get what you have now? And he goes, no. I said, first of all, the money's not that great. Second of all, I had to go through a lot of hoops, a lot of red tape, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, administrative, bureaucratic stuff. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm just saying that I'm, I'm glad I'm I'm doing my own thing because I like being my own boss and just yeah. <laughs> calling yeah. shots. I, I, you know, I, I kind of glossed this over before, and I, I uh, just I'm thinking that this this would be something I would think about. What's the difference between when you were trying to get bands up, and even if you weren't super serious about them, you know, but college bands, high school bands, what's the difference in that dynamic versus the path you went down, where really the individual guitarist is. Everything. You're a solo act. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, actually, I'm still in a band. My wife and I have a group called Trio Caliente, where well, we of do course. the Spanish yeah, sure. thing. And right. in fact, our, our third partner, Ben, who's going to be uh, playing some duets with me at the Carnegie Hall concert, he's our third member. Uh, he, he lives in Brooklyn. But, you know, we still got that band dynamic thing going. But, you know, when I was in high school and we we started with my best friend, whose name was also, is, his name is also Mike. He, um, he didn't know you know, anything about playing, picking up a bass guitar. Cause I wanted him to be the bass player. <laughs> uh, and then our friend Jim played drums. So we just kind of put it together and um, it was never, you know, you hear these stories about, you know, behind the music and whatnot, of the bands getting into fights and, you know, there was always right. tension and, you know, blah, blah, blah. There was never any of that with me and my, my ensembles ever. Cause there were no egos and I refused to, to, to play in a, an ensemble as you know if i can help it where there's there's egos because that's just that that really stilts the creative process it stunts the creative process it's really not a good so for me with the majority of the ensembles uh, with which i've been involved i would say it's it's been pleasant and it's cool because as a soloist, yeah, I can be creative and you know have my own ideas and all that. But when you have ideas from other people who are, you know, hopefully as you know, creative yeah, as yeah, yeah. you want right. them to be, it's uh, it's great because it's uh, it, it builds you up and it makes you have more ideas and makes you realize this you know, this could go in that direction and in that direction and whatnot. Um, is so there any good, is there any part of you though that because I'm thinking of when you said you know as opposed to being a college professor, you're able to go and call your own shots now. Yeah. Is right. there any of that dynamic when it comes to music where it's like, all right, I love being with a group, but I can only be with them for a little bit. Cause now I really like to be the entrepreneur just be solo out here by myself, do yeah. my own thing. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a good question, Chris, because I have been involved with a lot of other groups, like for example, the Coral Arts Society, of Washington, DC, where they bring me into the Kennedy center. And, um, but those are very short lived performance opportunities because they only last for a week or two at a time sure. you know and eventually uh, you know Cohen, not eventually but once in a while i will get a call from maybe a jazz singer who says i want you to come play with me on this project i'm giving a show at blues alley in washington dc these two dates can you come sure so we have a couple of rehearsals and it's great but it it's never a protracted endeavor you know it's always just really you know wham bam thank you ma'am 
you know, yeah. two weeks at the most, and then you move on to the next, um, the next thing. And same thing with recording projects. You know, oftentimes people will call me and ask me to come in and, and you know, be the hired gun to play guitar on a song or two, or you know, like with Jesus's album, the the yeah. entire album. Yeah, which yeah I was right. More than happy to do, and I was, you know, thankfully he asked me to to do all the arrangements. So, um, my experiences, you know, outside of just playing solo guitar, have been. I, I can't really say they've been. There have been any negative experiences. They've all been really positive and and uplifting let's talk let's talk about um now post italy what are the highlights what what blows you away what makes you go everything's starting to click Mm -hmm. everything's doing exactly what i wanted to do and um you're getting the feedback you want and you're feeling fulfilled Mm -hmm. what are what are some of the highlights what are some of the gigs that you're getting yeah okay so the first highlight was my first uh uh, piece Mediterranean Beauty, which was uh, a piece that I wrote for two guitars that was published, um, and that was a real highlight to, to get a an email from this publishing company in England, Lathkill Music. Michael, we want to publish your piece. It just happened to get in the right hands of a classical guitarist named Eleftheria Kotsia from Greece, who loved it. She heard it. They passed it to her. I signed off, and it was just like, "Wow, I'm vindicated." You know, I'm, I'm huh. actually a bon- bona fide published composer. Yeah, um, and it's still to this day like the number one track on streaming uh, streaming platforms for my compositional output. So that would probably be the first first uh, feather in my cap. But then um, back in 2014, um, I got a, an email from the Choral Arts Society, Michael. Uh, we need your help. Jeff Skunk Baxter, who was the guitar player for the Doobie Brothers, is scheduled to play with us for our Christmas concerts. Um, but he can only do one or two. Wondering if you could come in and play the repertoire that that the conductor has requested. So I said, send it to me. Let me listen. I emailed him back. I said, yep, I, I, I can do that. So that eventually led to me being the featured soloist. Mm. playing classical guitar for the Christmas concerts um, three times, I believe at the Kennedy center. And that was such a rush to play in front of, you know, 2,500, 3000 people or whatever spotlight on me. And it's just, I got to show my stuff and own it and, you know, let these people know that I can deliver. (laughs) It's different when you're with your band, because when you're with a band, you can, you know, turn to other guys and then, but (laughs) When it's right. just you, it's like it's like you know playing golf. Okay, I gotta yeah. get this putt from twenty feet if I don't get it. Um, and you know, fortunately, I was uh, blessed with some some good reviews, and they asked me back again and again and again. So I, I guess I did something right. But you know, just to have that experience to play on this world-renowned concert stage—I mean, even looking back, I just can't believe. Wow, how did I? I don't even do that. So that's why, you know, mm. Carnegie Hall, I can't, I'm a, I'm a Carnegie Hall virgin. So it's going to be probably the same feeling, butterflies in the stomach and, you know, really uh, just got to focus and, and do my thing. Well, and the dangers if you don't have them, right? You know, and then right. you're going flat. So yeah, it's all a good sign. Yeah. yeah. So, and then the other highlight was the State Department tours, four U.S. State Department tours with me and my friend Corey, you know, playing all over the Middle East, South America. North Africa. You know. What what is that? We told me about the State Department. What is that? Okay, mean? so yeah, yeah, so the U.S. State Department. Um, I'm sure you've heard of uh, the Fulbright uh, program yeah. where they 
In fact, um, uh, it was started, I think, back in the 1950s, where uh, the U.S. government would give grants to musicians to become essentially diplomatic ambassadors through music. Um, and so a buddy of mine, my friend Corey, Cal State Fresno, played at the Kennedy Center for their Millennium Stage Series. A woman came up to him after the concert, handed him her card. She says, my name is Judy Baruti. I work for the State Department. We have these concerts. Would you be interested on in going on a diplomatic tour? And he said, sure. So he called me a couple of days later. He said, Michael, we should put some duets together and do this as a guitar duo. I said, I'm there. <laughs> so um, basically, it was a grant that was given to us. And we thought, this is great. It was, uh, I think it was a five country tour. So Saudi, Yemen, Morocco, Jordan. It was a five country tour. And it was fabulous. Not a dud. Every concert was well attended. Who were the and, crowds? Um, well, we played, we played at all the U.S. embassies, okay. at all the, the capitals, you know, for example, the embassy in Rabat, Morocco, the embassy in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, the embassy, the U.S. embassy, of course, that's what I meant to say, the U.S. embassies, <laughs> uh, Amman, right. Jordan, um, you know, Bahrain. And we also gave public concerts at venues uh, for, for the public to come and, and see, you know, at no cost because they were, you know. Uh, grants subsidized by the U.S. government, so it was not just embassy officials and yeah, their yeah. their crowd, but it was also people who may have never heard a classical yeah. guitar concert, yeah. have been to a class. So that was the first, and then we were asked to do another tour shortly after nine eleven, actually in Jordan and Kuwait. And I was telling all my friends, "Yeah, we're going back to Jordan and Kuwait." And my mom was, "Oh, don't go, don't go! I don't want you uh, to get assassinated." Uh, yeah. And you know what we got there? Nothing happened. People loved it. We were nobody tried to harm us. What's the difference in the crowds versus the states? Can you tell? Yeah, you know, I think it's a crowd to crowd uh, variant because, although I got to say, overseas we got a lot, a lot of standing ovations, a lot of applause, and and I think it's because Chris, they weren't really familiar with. That style of music. Plus, we, th we threw in some American jazz, some Duke Ellington, some Miles Davis, and we made it more than just classical. It was like an amalgam of, of um, you know, different different music. So the variety uh, really, I think, helped boost the crowd's appreciation. Um, but we get that we got that here too when we were you know, performing for the for the U.S. crowds. As well, um, although I got to say, you know, I watched a documentary on Iron Maiden the other night. And some of these South American crowds, when they play in Chile or Colombia or whatever, yeah. they're just so rad. And then they, you know, they finish the concert, and then the camera turns to one guy, and he's crying because he was just so grateful that Iron Maiden came to my country. And yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Well, that's like a Russian Rio, right? Like they oh went. Oh my gosh! Like, yeah, they had no see. idea they had that many fans in in, in Brazil. You oh know? Oh my gosh! Yeah. So yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um. So, when did you get? When did you get into the Gypsy? Was it the Rumba? Gypsy Rumba is what it's Gypsy called. Rumba. Or, you know, Rumba Flamenco. Why? Why did you get into it? And and what was the triggering mechanism? Yeah, it was a fort. It was definitely a fortuitous occurrence because uh, I was just sort of focused on the classical repertoire, playing a little rock, playing a little jazz, teaching in my studio, 
taking the odd gig here and there around the DC, you know, DMV area. Um, and when I arrived to DC, I think it was uh, a few years later, 97, 98, I met a guy named Ricardo Marlowe, who's great. He's one of the top flamenco guitarists in this part of the country, if not the, the entire United States. He's a true flamenco aficionado. I got to meet him. We played a couple of gigs together. A couple of years passed by, you know, we don't do anything. And then one night I'm walking to make copies of my resume at the local Kinko's print shop. <laughs> you remember that? Oh, this whole cliche. And, yeah. yeah. And I, uh, I walk, uh, you know, and there's a restaurant called Bambalay. And I hear this guitar music. And so oh, that sounds pretty cool. I'm not quite familiar with that style. So I walk, yeah, I make the copies of my resume and I walk over, you know, it was a open air sort of uh, patio. And I see my my friend Ricardo, and he's playing there with another guy named Miguelito, and they're playing this Gypsy Rumba, Gypsy King stuff. And you know, so I went and got a drink, and I'm sitting there listening. And then some guy comes up to them and he requests a song, Black Orpheus, a Brazilian song, which Miguelito didn't know. So Ricardo waves to me and he says, "Come over here, can you play this song?" I said, "Sure." So we played it. We played the duet. And then he says, "What are you doing next weekend?" I said, uh, "Nothing." Why? He said, "Well, because my partner, my other partner." But not the guy he was playing with. So my other partner got fired for basically doing, you know, insubordination. <laughs> he uh, said, I want to teach you uh, the Gypsy Rumba repertoire. I said, dude, that's a week away. I don't, he said, I'm coming to your house. What day? Let's let's make it a Tuesday. So he came over and I said, dude, I don't know how to play this stuff. He said, I'm going to teach you. So it was sort of a trial by fire, really, because wow. he needed somebody to fit because he didn't want to just play solo. So he needed somebody to come and help accompany him and trade off on the solos. Huh. And I was not familiar with that repertoire at all. Okay. So I went in there the next uh, Friday thinking, well, <laughs> I hope I can do this. So I had all my notes written out on a little sheet on a music stand. And, um, and it actually went pretty well. So from that point on, I just started focusing more on that gypsy rumba style repertoire. And for the you know listeners who are not sure what that style is, if you just Google or type in you know Gypsy Kings, yeah, G I P S Y Kings, uh, a fabulous group um, from from France actually, but they sing in in Spanish and they play Spanish flamenco rumba guitar. Um, that's that was you know to become my focus for the next uh, few years. And, you know, with the group that I, I'm with, uh, Trio Caliente, we, we still play that, that style of music. So it wasn't my intention to learn it, but I'm glad I did because I love it. <laughs> now, I mean, now that you've gone, you know, years on this journey, uh-huh. what turns you on every day? Does it always change every day? Are you like really feeling Gypsy Rumba today? And then yeah. The other day, I'm really feeling I want to do some Bach. You like, yeah. is that what it is? Is it constantly it's a, it's on rotation? A, it's a, you know what, man? Yeah, it's like a day to day thing. It's like, um, okay, you don't eat the same thing every day for dinner. I mean, you got to have uh, your, your chicken, your steak, your fish, or whatever. But like today, I woke up and I just wanted to, because um, I followed this this thing on Instagram. It's called classical guitar uh, uh, videos or something. And they usually have a featured performer well, every other day. And so I clicked on it, and I hear this girl playing some some music of Albanas, one of the great Spanish masters. And I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So that inspired me. So right before we logged on to have this this interview, I started playing that. But 
you know, um, later on this afternoon, I'm going to be teaching a girl how to play uh, Come Together by the Beatles. So I'm really excited to show her that. And right after that, I'm going to be teaching a kid, um, you know, an Italian classical piece. So it just depends when I wake up. It's like, wow, if I hear something on the radio, like if I hear, I don't know, Sultan's a Swing or yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, it's like, I want to grab my electric guitar and go play that. Um it just depends on what mood I'm in. <laughs> really. How often do you compose nowadays? Not as often as I should, but I have my little, uh, uh, you know, iPhone recorder where I will play maybe 30 seconds of one idea. And then, you know, maybe a minute of another idea and not just on guitar. I play piano too, which, you know, I'm, I'm glad my mom made me take piano lessons as a kid because I hated it. <laughs> But I stuck with it because I later mm-hmm. learned how to. But in terms of composition, um, I have a lot of piano compositions. I have quite a few guitar co- compositions, and I've got a big folder with a, a stack of music that most of which has been recorded. Um, but I would say, uh, in in terms of composing an actual piece, I think I'm writing more songs with my trio, with my wife and and Ben, than I have been just writing solo guitar and piano pieces. But I would say I compose more in snippets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, and that makes total sense because you do have a lot of balls in the air. But talk yeah. about Trio Caliente and what that's meant. I mean, what's been fun about that for you? What's been fulfilling about that? Experience? You know, it's 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 the closest thing to being in a rock band. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. That uh, that I experience right now. <laughs> Excuse me. And I think what's really cool is. Um, to be able to collaborate with my wife, Deb, who's, you know, she's also a musician, composer, yeah. voice teacher, um, actress, pianist. So it's nice to be able to share that with your partner, you know, because not, you know, not everybody has a, a life partner and a work partner, but we kind of both do the same thing. So it's really um, cool to, you know, once in a while, hey, I've got this idea for a song. Oh, really? Let me see if I can add something to it and, and flesh it out. But um, you know, it's really just uh, something that I think every once in a while I take it for granted because it's there and it's yeah. just you expect it to be there all the time. But you know, it's you can't <laughs> have those expectations. <laughs> um, I can't let you go without uh, giving a chance to shout everything out. Obviously, we're going to talk about the concert a whole lot, so um. Let people know, though, how they need to follow you, where they need to follow you, Instagrams, websites, all that yeah, stuff, Mike. Sure, yeah. Okay, sure, sure. So my band's uh, website is triocaliente.com, T-R-I-O-C-A-L-I-E-N-T-E, caliente, which means hot, the hot trio, triocaliente.com. My own website is michaelbard.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, B like boy. A-R-D, D is dog, michaelbard.com. And then uh, my Instagram handle is uh, michaelbard.10.22, which is connected to my Facebook account. And we also have the trio Caliente on, on uh, Instagram as well. And then if, uh, let's just give people from the horse's mouth, let's give them a little bit of a tease as to why November 4th is worth their time. What, what what are you looking forward to creatively most about the four? Well, is, is it to be at Carnegie Hall or is it just the content or what is it? Yep, excuse me. My throat's got a little frog here. No, you're good. Um, I, yeah. I, I think it's uh, several things, actually. Number one, playing two of my own published compositions 
Mediterranean Beauty for Two Guitars and my other one, uh, Prelude Sueño, which means dream. Playing those at Carnegie Hall. I mean, to be able to, to play Carnegie Hall, it's great to, to play your own music. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's just going to be so visceral and, and surreal. Um, number two, collaborating with the other artists like Jesus, who's you know one of my favorite people in the world, one of the most talented tenors you're ever going to hear. The guy studied with Placido Domingo for crying out loud. I mean, he must be good. Right? Yeah, so, right. right. Um, and uh, playing the songs that I've arranged for his album. I mean, that's that's another thing that I'm really excited about um, doing as well. And then playing with the soprano Aurora Daner, um, who's uh, a young, upcoming DC-based soprano, uh, such a talent, such a focused kid. She's only a a, a junior in high school. So oh, it's like wow. she doesn't sound like it when she sings. So when you yeah. when she opens her mouth, you're really going to say, "Oh my goodness, that is yeah. uh, oh, an old seasoned soul right there." And then you know, playing uh, some duets uh, with my friend Benjamin Schnaki. Um, he's going to bring. Well, I guess I can mention it. He's going to bring his charango, which is a Chilean little instrument, um, kind of like a guitar, but it's more high pitched and it's got a very ethnic sort of. Uh, Andes, uh, you know, um, South American Indian kind of wow. sound, which um, we're wow. going to play a, a, a duet that um, he uh, he uh, just sent me the music actually, so I got to learn how to play it. <laughs> 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 uh, it's it's short though; it's only like two minutes long. So, but um, all those things. But I think yeah, just you know, collaborating with other artists, playing my own pieces, and um, just the experience of hey, this is. You know, bucket list playing the yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And, and listen, plus, I got to say, you know, playing yeah. for, and honoring the vets, honoring the vets who, uh, you know, again, circling back to my dad, yeah, who, who served uh, for this great nation as as an Air Force uh, vet, um, because it was, you know, it was the U.S. Uh, the military that saved his life. So it's it's like I'm going to be thinking about him, you know, a yeah. lot. Well, I mean, and, and your your ties to the veteran community. I mean, we didn't even get into all the yeah. mm-hmm. the the work you've done with veterans and, right. and teaching right. music and all that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is this seems like there's so many things that are full circle about it, mm-hmm. um, dude. I can't wait. Yeah, can't yeah, wait. can't wait to see yeah. this. All it's going to be fun. It's going to be, be incredible, amazing. And we appreciate so much Vet Rep Theater being the presenters uh, of this concert, and we want you guys to benefit. Uh, as well, and uh, we're going to make that happen, Chris. I no, listen, I, listen, I, it's, I feel it. It's I feel great. It in my heart. <laughs> you guys, you guys made this a layup. It's like you want to be beneficiaries? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, you grab. I mean, are you kidding? Sure. Um, but I mean, dude, and it, I think for me, it's been um, it's been great to get to know you and Deb also throughout this. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, man. Not 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 to bore everybody at the end of the podcast with like talking about how awesome we all are, <laughs> but but I was like, but like it's been. You guys have put together such a great team for this mm-hmm. and it's been so fun to uh, get to know yeah. you guys and artistically what you're what you're trying to do and it's just such an interesting uh set of programming and i think people are really gonna get a kick out of it it raises eyebrows we've announced it from the stage every oh, t- every parlor good. performance we've had good good and good. eyebrows pop up like a quarter of an inch every time well, you know, people are looking forward to it so thanks, yeah no it's gonna be a blast and thanks for coming on and doing this. It was yeah. great to talk, man. So much, so much interesting stuff. And uh, we'll talk again real soon. We'll talk again in like six hours or oh, whatever yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. you know. But for um, sure. thanks for doing this, man. 
Hey, Chris, we really appreciate it. And um, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you, man. That was the savage wonder of Michael Bard. Boy, um, the start of that episode really got me. Mm. Hell of a familial story to start with. Um, yeah, we could have done an hour and a half on that alone. Uh, and then um, I can nerd out on art for a long time, especially when somebody, you know, when it's somebody's life. And with Michael, you know, who's dedicated his life to his music. Uh, it's it's nothing more thrilling to talk to somebody about the stuff that they love to do, um, especially when it's artistic. It's just wildly compelling. And um, yeah, can't wait for November 4th. If you want to come see the show again, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Scroll partway down the homepage and you'll see the, the links right there to get tickets uh, for Michael's uh, performance. It's going to be a swank night out. I mean, it's Carnegie Hall, for crying out loud. Um, So you come on out to that Saturday night at Carnegie Hall. I mean, what more do you want? Um, I should say, if you're a veteran and you want to come, there are tickets being donated as well. So just know that. You can hit us up, uh, info at vetrep.org. Email us if you want to get on the uh, ticket list, the donation list for tickets. And we can add your name to it. And um, as we get donated tickets coming in, we can uh, send them your way. Um, so there is that um, to make it even easier for you to come into Carnegie Hall and see the show. But um, I don't know how many we're going to get because honestly, the tickets are selling out um, pretty quickly. Like we're, we were a couple, I haven't checked tickets this week. Uh, it's not my show. <laughs> you know, is that we're just, we're just there looking pretty uh, as the beneficiaries. But um, if, uh, but the last time I did check a couple weeks ago, it was already half sold out, which is you know, somebody that puts on performances a lot to be half sold out eight weeks out is really incredible. So, um, so I don't know, we'll see how many donated tickets there are, but we do have a list. So, um, by all means, reach out if you'd like to be put on that list. And, um, and if you want to pay for the tickets, there's that too. You can always get them at vetrep.org and um, we have all the links right there. Okay. Um, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, who, as you're listening to this, I think is, I think he's on his honeymoon. Uh, I think by the time you're listening to this, he should be on his honeymoon. Um, but he put this together beforehand. Deeply appreciate it. Thanks, Mike, uh, for doing that. And, I think that's all we have to say about that. Oh, God, no, it isn't. Nope. You know, I, yeah, there's always something. Okay. So, November 4th is going to be incredible. Go get tickets to that. But if you're saying to yourself, no, I live in New England, or I'm going to be in New England just the week before, not going into New York City. Okay. Well, on Halloween, Tuesday, October 31st, in Boston, at an undisclosed private location half a block from the Boston Commons, we are going to be there with our latest Savage Wonderground immersive art performance. Nicholas F. Stathew of Cross, Massachusetts, Amy Sexauer, Ben Fortier, Dex, Iman uh, Caffell, Dave Camposano, bunch of awesome New England-based poets, 
artists, writers, musicians are going to be there putting on this immersive art show that we have titled Ghost Story. So here's how this happened. So Nick, who writes across Massachusetts, it's shocking, jarring horror. So when else are you going to platform his work, if not Halloween? But then Ben Fortier writes Phantoms, and Ben Fortier's work can skirt around horror pretty well, too. And he writes Phantoms. He's got a whole bunch of material that's out there just floating in the breeze. It's like, okay, let's we got to get them together. And then I was like, but wait, let's do something more than horror. Let's do so, Not that horror is not sufficient, but I think a lot of times horror suffers from lack of context. And um, what we've done is interweave poems about motherhood, loss of innocence, unrequited love, failed relationships, um, kinetic violence with Nick's horror stories. And it is badass. You don't, you, you have to take my word for it. Come see the show and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it is incredible because the way that these horror stories are backstopped by such emotional truth, personal experience, and just beautifully articulated emotions. It is an incredible it's going to be an incredible evening. It's a one-night-only performance. Open bar, finger foods. There is a dress code. Got to wear a jacket if you're a man or a business attire or a costume. But tickets are free. You do have to RSVP, however. And you RSVP, again, by going to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org. When you're at vetrep.org, scroll partway down the page. You'll see the option to get an RS- get on the RSVP list for Savage Wonderground Boston. We're going to hit you up for donations when you get there. There's no two ways about it. It's, it's an expensive night for us. But, um, you know, we like to pay our artists. They're all professionals. They deserve to be paid. So your donations help with all that. So we're going to hit you up for that. But it's a free ticket. So what do you have to lose? Open bar? Are you kidding? On Halloween? It's going to be the most badass Halloween party in Boston. That's not an empirical statement. But I'm, I'm, I feel very strongly that it's going to be a pretty incredible, unforgettable evening. You should come out and see it if you're in Boston or New England, for that matter. I mean, Nick's coming down from New Hampshire. Ben's coming up from Rhode Island. Um, it's just going to be an incredible night. I'm incredibly excited for it. And the location is incredible. It's three floors of intimate, uh, what's the best word? Intimate, literary, interesting, incredible space. It's a private location. We'll let you know where it is when you RSVP. Um, and it's an incredible, incredible location. So as you guys know, we do love our intimate shows. We do love having very small audiences and doing shows for highly curated, um, crowds because that's just, it's a different vibe. It hits a little bit different and we like that feeling a little bit more than, you know, uh, something for the masses. So there's not that many tickets. So come RSVP, get your tickets now. Uh, because they're not going to be around long, and there's not that many out there. But we'd love to see you there. So again, go to vetrep.org, and you can get those tickets. So you got two great events coming up here in the fall, October 31st in Boston for Ghost Story, and then November 4th at Carnegie Hall for Michael Bard. Pretty cool stuff. Okay, guys. So I thanked Michael Neal, our producer, right? 
who's out on its honeymoon. And now, um, on behalf of everybody at VetRep, thanks for checking us out and tuning in. Come see us real soon. We'd love to see you. Have a great week, and we'll catch you next time as we dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts.